This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest will compel you to think again before you listen to anyone saying the world will end in 2012. Could he be right? Or could he be wrong? I guess we'll have to wait. In the meantime, he will share with us his multi-decade research into the 2012 story. Tonight's special guest is John Major Jenkins, and he will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's interview and all our interviews, become a member. You will receive instant access to all of them. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. So if you've been listening to the first segment of the show for some time, don't you think it's time to listen to the entire show and support our work? Just visit our website, VeritasShow.com, click on the subscribe link, and take Veritas with you. You can now download the latest show via the iTunes link. 
that simple. And the new 8GB metal case USB drive filled with Season 2, the best music of 2010, the Benowitz letters, and NASA footage that is no longer on their catalog, is now available for sale. Season 1 is still available too. You can also purchase both Seasons 1 and 2 and save on shipping. Just go to the Veritas store and place your order. And don't forget and get your MMS right from us. If you still don't know what MMS is, go to our past shows link and find the interview with Jim Humble, entitled Jim Humble versus the FDA. And if you're looking for health supplements, our new source offers the best pricing you can find. And thank you for all the feedback you're sending me. Just find the link on our homepage. Look for your favorite product and compare. No matter how much you purchase, your shipping is $5.95 for domestic purchases. They also ship internationally. Thank you for all your feedback about Sean David Morton's show. A lot of you have written to me thanking for having Sean on the show. And as you know, I don't like to listen to only one side of every story. I like to listen to both sides. And it would be unfair to just listen and read what the internet has to say, all the blogosphere about Sean. And the fact that I allowed him to state his portion of the story is very important. And I'm glad that you have recognized that. Also, I let Sean talk a lot and we did a very long show, but in the future, we'll have him on again and we'll have more of a question and answer interview. As a matter of fact, some of you are asking to have Sean, David Morton, and Cliff High on the show together. And I guess we'll see. We'll see if we can make that happen. That would be an explosive show. And I know that Sean likes Cliff's work and I know Cliff likes Sean's work so that would be a good combination but you may remember how I placed a lot of emphasis on the news about Tunisia here's something I said talk about the elephant in the room for a second that people are not mentioning too much what's happening in Tunisia right now this could be a domino effect for the entire Arab world you're following what's happening in Tunisia right yes yeah what do you think is going to happen there it's planetary it's worldwide it's 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 happening because it's supposed to happen everything that's coming down right now and again, in the Arab world, what you're seeing is that these are the Arab countries, which, remember, do not believe in interest banking. They had what they, what they called uh, Sharia banking. That's actually what it was called. And one of the reasons why they're, they're so hammer and tong about getting rid of Iran is Iran is one of the few fundamentalist Muslim states, again, that is not playing the games with the Western bankers. The Arab right. countries like Dubai that decided to get into the derivatives markets and basically play the Western banking game, they're all collapsing, they're all tanking, they've all been robbed blind. So now you have a system, and again, why, is, why are China and Islam the, the two major stepping stones uh, you know, to the new world order, if you will, because they were not participating in the, in, in the Western, in basically the Rothschild-controlled Western banking structures. So he agreed that this is global. People are watching the news not on their TV, but on the internet. The young people, that is. And that's if they have internet. We will see more of this. Now, if we see this in the most repressive regime of all, Saudi Arabia, then you know it's a regional 
ticking time bomb. However, I really don't see Saudi Arabia going that route. Why? Because their repression is so embedded. At the same time, the biggest domino in this domino effect is Egypt. I said it before the news came out this week about Egypt. Egypt is not Tunisia. Tunisia is about 10 to 11 million people. Egypt is the most populated Arab country with about 80 million people. I find it interesting and hypocritical how merely a few months ago the United States praised their ally, Tunisia, as a model country in the region. Ben Ali, the former president, was our quote-unquote ally. Now that the people have awakened and are no longer putting up with this dictatorship, all of a sudden we say we support the people of Tunisia. One man's self-immolation has started a new movement. In case you don't know, the man was a young father who had a streetcar where he sold produce to support his brothers, children, parents, etc. The government came to take his produce away and he complied. But when they took his equipment, his scale, etc., he couldn't take it anymore. He could not accept the fact his family would starve and he engulfed himself on fire and died so that the world could see. I'm telling you, this story has been somewhat under the radar in the Western world because they don't want the domino effect to continue. But they can no longer hide the fact that this is happening. Look at what's happening in Egypt. If Egypt goes, the rest will go. Morocco, Sudan, Algeria, maybe in Syria. And also, there's another piece of news that's not being discussed too much out there. A few days ago, the nuclear talks with Iran broke down. What happened 24 hours later? Iran sent its naval fleet to the Red Sea, and now they're sending them to the Mediterranean as well. If history repeats itself, let's take the Gulf of Tonkin again. Another false flag event may happen very soon. And as you know, the powers that want to be are itching for another world war. I'll continue following these news of that region of the world that seems to be so volatile right now. If you want to participate in all this discussion, become a member of our forum. Listening to the Veritas show is only a portion. I participate and engage all of you forum members, and there's a lot of important news being discussed that we don't have the time to discuss here. Just go to our website, become a member, or if you are a member, all you have to do is click on the forum link and register. My interaction with you does not end with the very test show. It only begins. And now, get ready to find out why the ancient people of Mesoamerica created the Long Count Calendar. Who were they? Where was it done? And when? Ask yourself this question. Why is fear the most preponderant emotion inflicted on the population? Fear distracts, weakens, and kills. Could the 2012 story be the biggest and most elaborate fear campaign ever designed for an upcoming natural or perhaps man-made disaster? Will the planet and life as we know it end on December 21st, 2012? These are important questions to explore if you really want to understand the 2012 story. For the answers, John Major Jenkins is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas.
This is Graham Hancock, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. John Major Jenkins is an independent researcher who has devoted himself to reconstructing ancient Maya cosmology and philosophy. Since 1986, John has traveled to Mexico and Central America seven times. In 1990, he helped build a school in San Pedro, near Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. In 1994, he delivered relief supplies to a Quiche Maya community in the western highlands of Guatemala. Since beginning his odyssey of research and discovery with the Maya, John has authored dozens of articles and seven books. As a visiting scholar, Jenkins has taught classes at the Institute of Maya Studies in Miami, the Maya Calendar Congress in Mexico, the SLN Institute, Naropa University, and many other venues, both nationally and abroad. He has been interviewed on numerous radio and television shows, and John has been featured on the Discovery Channel's Places of Mystery series, which continues to be broadcast regularly on the Travel Channel. John's careful scholarship and cutting-edge insights into why the Maya chose 2012 to end a great world age cycle have been endorsed by the most progressive thinkers of our day. And directly from the beautiful state of Colorado, I would like to introduce for the first time on Veritas, John Major Jenkins. Hello, Mr. Jenkins, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the program. My pleasure. May I call you John? Sure. Thank you. Well, John, I just want you to know, first of all, that I'm approaching this interview without any assumptions. You have to be living under a rock if you haven't heard a lot of the information out there, misinformation, disinformation, you name it, about 2012. So now the question is, who has the right answer about 2012? And I hope we can explore this in your book, The 2012 Story, The Myths, Fallacies, and the Truth Behind the Most Intriguing Date in History. Love that title, by the way. But first, John, give us some background of yourself, and when did you start looking into the 2012 story? Well, it really began before I even uh, pursued the 2012 investigation. It began as a general interest in the Native American cultures, and uh, I moved to Colorado from uh, Chicago about 25 years ago, and I was living here in Colorado, and I was reading the works of uh, Frank Waters. He wrote some amazing books on the Hopi and um, another book on the Maya. And I decided that I could save up a little bit of money and uh, travel south of the border, and I planned a trip. And that first trip that I took to Central America and Mexico back in 1986 was really eye-opening. And that began my journey with uh, uh, working with the Maya people um, and investigating and studying the Maya traditions. So that really that really developed through the through the 1980s into the into the 90s, and I started to investigate the more uh, uh, you know sort of unknown aspects of the tradition, and that led to my research into the 2012 date. And as you know, John, and as I said before. There's a lot of information out there that seems to be creating a, a cottage industry. You wrote in a word in your book that caught my attention, 2012ology, which has been growing exponentially with a unique set of issues and attractions. It's accelerating because the public arena wants, for some reason, Hollywood, for example, a TV, the mainstream media, they sell doomsday scenarios, and they spun out by the mainstream media and opportunistic writers. It's all profit-based. What's your take on this? Yeah. 
Yeah, it has to be said, you know, it's not surprising that uh, 2012 has been gaining ground in the uh, mass marketplace. Uh, and it's it's been a, a very strange sort of development because I was researching this, you know, some 20 years ago and wrote about it in my book, uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, which has been out for 13 years now. Right. And I've observed this increasing, growing interest in 2012, but it's been through the filter of the marketplace. And one of the biggest sort of misconceptions in the whole thing is that there's some kind of definitive proof that the Maya predicted the end of the world in 2012. And I don't see any evidence at all for that. In fact, to the contrary, um, the Maya thought of cycles and cycle endings as being about transformation and renewal. And there is good information that we can look at, uh, information in the Maya traditions and the Maya creation mythology and on this new monument called Tortuguero, Monument 6, which helps us understand how the ancient Maya were themselves thinking about this date. So I guess we have to uh, sort of, you know, make the statement that that would be a valuable way to approach 2012, you know, trying to figure out what the ancient Maya themselves actually thought about it. And, you know, that's not necessarily the assumption in the marketplace. And so predictably you get uh, a vast spectrum of, of inventive, um, creative models and you know information on this 2012 thing that are that are, they're just growing out of a huge amount of assumptions about what it's supposed to be about, and it can be entertaining, it can be humorous, it can be a Hollywood movie, it can be a lot of different things. Uh, you might even have interesting teachings to talk about in some of that material, but. The, the question remains as to how much it really truly reflects what the ancient Maya themselves were thinking about this. And that's, that's been my approach to 2012 um, uh, all along. So I think that's a valuable approach to take. And I keep using the term cottage industry because I remember the years leading to Y2K. This uh-huh. whole business monster was created to protect computers, to, to uh, you know, predicting the end of the world. But anyway, do you think the same cottage industry of Y2K just changed its name now to 2012? And, you know, they have 12 years from what, to 20, uh, the year sure. 2000 to 2012 to make all this <laughs> amount of money? Sure. Well, uh, it's, it is the realm of uh, the marketplace, and it's also the realm of the mainstream media. And as we know, there's that motto in the in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, yes. so they always want to run the dramatic uh, stories that have to do with uh, terrorism or um, murders and things like that. And you know, I'd just really like to appeal to the many readers out there. I know I'm getting a lot of great feedback, uh, especially in the last uh, six months or so, where people are not interested in that. I don't think people necessarily ever were interested in that. It's something that um, the media says that people are supposed to be interested in. That's why they craft their stories according to the if it bleeds, it, it leads motto. But I think that does a disservice and it's kind of an insult to the intelligent of the, uh, of the public um, because I think people just want the real honest information and the hard questions and they don't want to be manipulated and controlled by a self-serving mass media machine anymore. And you say that the Maya calendar has suffered the cut and paste 
cosmologizing of one of the wizard's pocket protector prophets and celebrity showmen making this dangerous for the for the unsuspecting newcomer uh, do you see this almost like the ufo industry well yeah that that quote came from my introduction and i and i've tried to to have a little bit of humor with this and and uh, point out these things but i think it is similar in many ways to the kind of craze that has revolved around um, the question of UFOs, which, like 2012, if you really get into a deep investigation of the UFO phenomenon, there's some very interesting things to explore there. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the Maya calendar in 2012. But it's, it's this sort of surface, superficial level of the way it's presented oftentimes uh, that um, does a disservice to the, uh, to the real uh, information. And I've always wondered about this scenario, John, just like the UFO cottage industry. What happens if finally there is disclosure and contact with extraterrestrials happens? What happens on December 22nd, 2012, and nothing happens? It's just going to be another Y2K scenario. Well, that's probably, you know, going to be the eventuality, but that doesn't see this is this is sort of the problem with the whole discussion is that people for some reason, expect that something specific is supposed to happen on December 21st of 2012. That, again, as with many other things in this discussion, uh, people assume that that is the case, you know, and that's just not the way that the material or the information works. It's an assumption that's projected into the 2012 topic from people who don't really understand what it's about. And... Um, so if nothing happens on December 21st of 2012, it doesn't mean that the whole thing was a hoax or a joke. Uh, 2012 is an authentic artifact of the ancient Maya calendar tradition. Uh, people who have been passionate about understanding uh, Maya wisdom traditions, and ha like myself, have been trying to reconstruct and figure out what the Maya thought about this date. There's been some amount of progress in... In moving this forward, despite a lot of resistance among professional Maya scholars and despite the noise that's generated in the marketplace around the discussion, and the investigation will continue and will continue to uh, understand more deeply how profound the ancient Maya people were and how much they understood about um, astronomy and spiritual teachings. And uh, I'm sure that the date is going to be used by people of dubious intent uh, for their own agendas, whether it be a doomsday thing or, or get-rich-quick schemes or whatever. You know, that's not surprising at all. So, yeah, there's a lot of people that are saying that something specific is going to be hap happening on December 21st of 2012. And when it doesn't happen, then they will just have to go cash out their bank accounts and retire somewhere for the rest of their lives. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, you mentioned some respected researchers on your book. Uh, do you suffer the consequences, the preponderance of the attention-grabbing marketplace products out there that sensationalize the 2012 story? And perhaps that's why it takes time for the average individual to find you, because it's a sea of disinformation as opposed to true research. Is this a problem you face? Oh yeah, for sure, and and you know I, there are definitely problems with that, and um, uh, you know, one of the other problems related to that is that uh, my work will be appropriated and utilized in somebody else's 
idea of, mm. of what it's supposed to be about. So that can be problematic too. I've had some great, um, you know, breakthroughs, and I do have allies um, in academia and uh, among the the group of um, investigative writers out there. And I do really appreciate all the uh, support and and good. Uh, good words that I've received from them. And so I really do think that something's opening up, you know, that something's opening up and we're, we can get past. Um, I mean, after all, this is kind of a profound thing that's being put on the table for consideration, that the, that the ancient Maya were sophisticated astronomically in ways that we didn't really understand before and, uh, and that they were more advanced than we've previously given them credit for. And and that their spiritual teachings are actually really profound spiritual teachings that we could benefit from studying, and it has to do with uh, you know how to successfully uh, facilitate a, a transformation and renewal for for us individually and probably collectively as a as a civilization. You know these are really interesting things, and I do have great hope that uh, we can open up to to some of these things. Absolutely. And I finished your book last night. I loved it because you put it in a way, in chronology, you put some of the foundation out there for the people who may not be familiar with the story. You could have written 10 volumes, but you summarized it all in in your book, which is a little bit more 400 pages. A lot of people think of the Maya, but don't think about the Aztecs who surfaced hundreds of years later. But there is once again, this information and perhaps misinformation out there saying that the Maya simply disappeared. Some people say that they went back to where they came from. But in reality, they just spread out around and can be found in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras. Tell us what happened to the Maya people. Yeah, the classic Maya civilization ran from about 200 A.D. to about 900 A.D., and the civilization collapsed uh, due to a variety of factors, including environmental degradation and and greed, uh, proliferation of princedoms, and they all wanted to get their piece of the pie, and, you know, internal strife and warfare and crop failure and and, uh, uh, that kind of thing. so uh, in a very localized way, in the Peitain, um, the Maya civilization collapsed. And, of course, the Maya people didn't just disappear. They disbanded back into the forests, and there were other groups of Maya people that arose um, after that. In the highlands of Guatemala, for example, the Quiche Maya kingdoms arose around 1200 uh, A.D., and uh, so, yeah, that's one of those uh, misconceptions. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it sort of plays into a sci-fi uh, interpretation that you find uh, oftentimes repeated. That you know, the the Maya returned to the stars or something like that. And right. So you know, those things you know play well in in sort of sci-fi versions of of Maya culture, but it doesn't really reflect that accurately. Now, having said that, I, I think we do have to acknowledge that the Maya were uh, in their, uh, this is something that I've, uh, the Maya were sophisticated, and they were advanced in in their understanding of, of nature and reality, you, may, you might say. They had a kind of a holistic grasp on how things are interrelated, and how um, the cycles in the sky reflect the cycles on the earth. The, you might call this the uh, as above, so, so below. below principle. 
And, uh, you know, modern science criticizes this idea as some kind of astrology belief or something. But, but actually, uh, uh, quantum physics understands that these apparently separated domains are actually interrelated. You know, that's what quantum physics gives us, this idea that the subjective and the objective worlds are, in fact, interrelated and interdependent. So the Maya were really tapped into these kinds of profound ideas. And uh, I think that it's important, and my hope is that as we get closer to 2012, it's going to draw people's attention to how sophisticated and advanced the Maya people were in the past and are today, because there's many Maya people still around today doing amazing things. And there, there actually seems to be a kind of a a Maya Renaissance, uh, a Renaissance of Maya culture going on in in parts of uh, uh, Guatemala and Mexico and Belize. And let's talk about the bias for a second, because this is very important. To what do you attribute the embedded bias within Western assumptions that was installed by both religious and scientific training? That they may be unscientific. That they may be unscientific, and this has continued to today. When in fact they were masters in astrology mathematics, philosophy, and many other areas. Why do you think that the religious and scientific communities have so many prejudices and misconceptions toward the Maya culture? Well, yeah, this actually, that's great, Mel. I appreciate that link because it kind of ties into what I was just saying. It, I think that recognizing and celebrating how advanced and sophisticated and brilliant the Maya people were in the past and are today does have um, a difficult time dealing with um, the areas which have injected prejudice into that. For example, um, religious basis, uh, when the um, Franciscan uh, priests came over to the New World and the colonization of the New World was happening in the 1500s and 1600s, the big debate was whether or not they could save the Maya or the indigenous people, because they were debating whether or not they actually had souls. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so you're up again, right away. One's up against the huge bias there. Um, politically, um, there's been a kind of um, an attitude uh, that's been put forward that the native peoples of this continent are basically savages, and and that they, you know their lands can be taken and they can be treated unfairly and that they're barbarians and savages. And, you know, it's funny. Soulless animals. Yeah, exactly. And you see this propagated in the Hollywood movies where they always show the, the Maya, you know, doing human sacrifices and stuff like that. Well, people should know that at the very exact same time in the seventh and eighth centuries AD, the, uh, progenitors of England, the Anglo-Saxon tribe, who were then migrating across the English Channel into England in the 7th and 8th centuries AD, they practiced human sacrifice. So this is just to say that any advanced civilization will practice the, the full spectrum of human barbarities and, and also simultaneously be pursuing more sophisticated things. So it's an inherently unfair treatment uh, politically. And, and these things filter into the scientific academic approach to uh, the Maya. I see this time and time again where professional Maya scholars, instead of having an objective attitude, which they're supposed to, are actually being influenced by uh, uh, these kinds of uh, embedded uh, biases or prejudice against accepting that, say, for example, the ancient Maya people had a sophisticated astronomy. And do you think 
that a lot of the information about the Maya calendar was pretended to be unbelievable to the Spanish conquistadors and those who came after. And they basically said that astronomical observations of this sort were incompatible with the prodigious uh, ignorance of those people who did not have enough words to count to ten. And I remember reading your book, they also talk about how the king's castle for the Maya was nothing but a hut in comparison to the king's castle that the Europeans had. Basically, arrogance. They didn't want to admit that these savages could have the potential of knowing all this. Does that mean, in your opinion, that is arrogance? Oh, yeah. I, I think that uh, those uh, observations came from some of the early um, historians and travelers in the 1700s uh, who were um, not actually... Uh, You know, they had not even traveled to Mexico. I, th I think those came from um, historians who were just propagating uh, misinformation about um, what was known about the uh, the extent of, say, the Aztecs, for example. And uh, and so th that's that's very problematic. And I think that it does come. I think it comes also from ignorance, um, and as well as arrogance, and. Um, And, you know, these are the kind of things that I think we still deal with a lot of times when we're trying to understand um, uh, native belief systems, indigenous uh, paradigms and cosmologies, uh, because in some ways they did and do have a, a, a different sort of perspective on things. And it's, it's a perspective that, as I said, it, 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 it embraces a more holistic view of the world And to the Western mindset, the scientific Western mindset, that is very inscrutable. It's very difficult to understand that kind of comprehensive vision of, of the world. And so it gets uh, kind of demonized. They don't understand it. They're, they're ignorant of what it really means. They can't grasp it, and so they demonize it. And, and um, you know, that, that leads to a lot of problems. And this is an important question. Who came up with the false assertion that the ancient Maya predicted doomsday in 2012? Uh, well, this is part of what I've tracked in my book, the 2012 story, and it is a good question. Where did this idea first originate? Um, yeah. And I've had to go back through the literature, and I, this is something that I love to do. I like this kind of arcane research. And I'm, you know, I've been studying the, these things and reading all the books on it, and it's, it's quite apparent that the first place in that I can find published or unpublished where uh, somebody is mentioning the cycle ending that's approaching in the long count calendar was in a book by a Maya scholar named Michael Coe. Uh, he wrote a book uh, that was first published in 1966 called um, The Maya, and it's since gone through many revisions and many new editions. And um, I'm not even sure if this... Idea, uh, this idea might even still be preserved in the latest editions. I'm not sure. But in the 1966 edition, he basically interpreted the uh, 2012 cycle ending as a kind of Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Now, he used the term Armageddon, so you know that he is projecting a kind of a Christian uh, bias about time yes. into this thing. And I, I think that that's very, very problematic because the indigenous time concept is cyclical in nature, whereas the Judeo-Christian tradition is linear. linear. And you get an apocalypse at the end. <laughs> so, so it's a it, that's just basically a fundamental problem of projecting one system onto another. 
And I'm so glad, John, that you have connected some very important dots here because American Indians, and for that I refer to South America and all the way up to Alaska, but here are some of the things, folks, American Indians were doing all on their own. Metallurgy, brain surgery, plant breeding, medicinal healing, mathematics, astronomy, massive architecture, art, music, and poetry. And this is basically hidden from Western culture. It's an attitude of underinformed prejudice masquerading as cool-headed rationalism. We get back to ego. Why can we accept, John, that there was a pre-Columbian culture that was already here and engaging all these things without the influence of that new culture? Well, I think it's it's improving. You know, the, the work that I'm doing is to celebrate these kinds of uh, brilliant achievements. And I think there is a sector of uh, uh, people who Mainly, it's usually people that have traveled, you know, um, to indigenous areas and spent time and, you know, things have changed and I think in many ways that we're coming to a greater appreciation for for the achievements of, of the indigenous people of the Americas. And, and uh, I think there's a kind of a continuing process of integration and it does sort of require an attitude of humility. Um, sort of on both sides, actually, I think. There's so many bruised egos and, and wounds, old wounds that uh, need to be uh, healed. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because um, awakening, which I think is one way to, uh, like a very important way to, to think about what 2012 can be about, uh, transformation and renewal and, and awakening to a, a greater perspective, a bigger picture um, I think that does require a kind of a healing, you know, healing the old wounds and opening up to new possibilities. And that, that sort of gets into the spiritual teachings that I've also been very interested in, in writing about, the spiritual teachings that you find in the Maya creation mythology, which, which do have to do with the battle between self-serving ego and you know greed and egoism it's generating so many of the problems in our world today mm -hmm. the battle between that and this um larger perspective this bigger picture this uh healed uh perspective and and opening up to greater possibilities of working together and creating a sustainable world when i think about this it gives a new meaning to the term discovery of america if they were already here and doing all these things. But I want you to take a minute, John, to please differentiate the Maya calendar and the Aztec long calendar. There's confusion between these two. The Aztec calendar, which was found in what used to be the capital of Mexico, Tenochtitlan, which was destroyed by Hernán Cortés. These ancient ones clearly observe the cycles of the sun, moon, and planets and have devised a sophisticated calendar system to track those movements. Please explain the difference between both of them. Well, in central Mexico, among the Aztecs and the earlier Toltec people and the Nahuatl people of central Mexico, they mm -hmm. did not have the long count calendar. And the long count calendar is something that was specifically developed by the earlier Maya people, and that is the calendar that gives us the 2012 date. Um, it operates in a different mathematical way that's based on cycles of 20 and, uh, you know, periods of. 20 days, 360 days, um, uh, 1,440 days, and so on. They're sort of like uh, cycles within cycles, wheels within wheels. 
And the central Mexican people, um, including the, the later Aztecs, they did not um, adopt the long count calendar. They had a system called the calendar round system, and the calendar round is based on uh, two smaller periods. One is the 260-day sacred calendar, and the other is the 365-day uh, vague year. So these two periods come together once every 52 years, and that's the calendar round. And that's, that's the calendar round that you see on the famous Aztec uh, calendar stone, that big circular disc uh, that you see oftentimes. And... Um, you know, that's a whole doctrine of time. It's very interesting, but that comes from the later day uh, Aztec uh, civilization in the 15th century. Uh, but it does represent the calendar round. Um, now, now, it should be said that these two calendar systems, the Maya also f followed the calendar round system, but uh, the distinction is that in central Mexico, uh, the Aztecs did not have the long count calendar that gives us uh, the 2012 date. Was there a positive relation between the Mayans and the Aztecs at one point, or did they not coexist at the same, coexist at the same time? Oh, no, there was a lot of uh, uh, travel and trade routes going on even before the classic Maya uh, culture got going around 200 mm. A.D. Uh, there was, a, uh, of course, the great central Mexican uh, metropolis um, called uh, Teotihuacan, uh, that was way before the Aztecs. Uh, that that they call those the Teotihuacanos. You know, they uh, did this amazing, huge uh, metropolis uh, right where Mexico City is now. Um, uh, and uh, and and then you had uh, another huge metropolis down in Guatemala called Camino Huyu, which is where Guatemala City is right now. So there's a lot of trade routes going on between there. There's a lot of interaction between the Central Mexicans and the uh, and the Maya people. Now, since the Aztecs came along quite a bit later, you know, around the 14th, uh, 13th, 14th century, um, that was well after the Maya civilization collapsed. So I think there probably still was a lot of trade and movements going on with different regions of Mesoamerica, and so. You always had that going on. You know, in fact, when Teotihuacan fell in the 7th century, there was a vast migration to the east, and a lot of those central Mexicans ended up in the Yucatan Peninsula, traditional Maya areas. And there you saw a resurgence of culture at the site of Chichen Itza, that famous site of Chichen Itza, which many of your listeners have probably visited um, with the great pyramid of Kukulkan and the great ball court and the cenote, that site really got going in the ninth century A.D., and it was the product of this merging of Central Mexican and Mayan ideas and culture. And when I lived in Mexico in the early 90s, and I'm embarrassed to say that I was there to help implement NAFTA, I, w I wish I had known back then what I know now. But I remember people talking about how their culture the origin of the cultures was very similar to the Egyptian. Some people would say that. And one person told me, listen to these two words, rhyme. Mexico in Spanish, Mexico, and Egypt, Egipto. Mexico, Egipto. Three syllables, and they rhyme. Did you ever look into this coincidence? Well, that's pretty interesting. I, I'm, I think uh, 
I think Mexico would comes from the Nahuatl language, uh, Mexica, you know, that, that kind of mm-hmm. central Mexican thing. There's a lot of parallels like that. You know, it's, it's difficult to understand what that might be going on there. Um, certainly the Olmec people, which preceded the Aztecs and the Maya, the Olmec civilization goes back some 3,000 years. Uh, we have a lot of stone heads from the Olmec culture, in Mexico, and some of them do resemble mongoloid or, or negroid facial characteristics, and for that reason, people believe that uh, there might have been some amount of contact going on between uh, Africa or perhaps uh, Egypt. And uh, so there's great mysteries in the past that we don't fully understand. And that's the part. If we have, let's pick Teotihuacan, we have the, the pyramid pyramid of the sun and then we have uh, the pyramids in Egypt makes you wonder if there's as you say there was a connection before but of course we're led to believe that the worlds were completely separate and then if that's the case how did that possibly happen how did they get this knowledge well I don't necessarily believe that all the knowledge was uh, planted by boat travel going around the continents Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a kind of universal knowledge that can emerge among or within any culture or civilization because people uh, open up to it um, and uh, can open up to and uh, um, incorporate those universal principles into the development of their civilization. And it's because it comes from a universal source that it's not necessarily required that there's some, you know, you know, uh, wise teachers that are going around on boats, you know, whether or not they came from Egypt or Atlantis or something like that. It's kind of the same way that back in the 1800s, um, uh, mythologists who were collecting stories from around the world uh, in, in, you know, primitive societies or whatever from around the world, they collected these folk stories and they found that a lot of the folk stories resembled each other. So one of the ideas was that, oh, there must have been some huge boat-traveling culture that went around and shared these folk stories with all these different groups from around the world. But then the other interpretation, which emerged as the field of psychology developed, is that, no, it's because we're all human beings and we all experience the same journey of birth and adolescence and growth and marriage and and death, you know, we all participate in these same themes, and so these these folk stories emerge out of the collective reservoir of what we all share as human beings. That you know, it's not required that there were boats going around, uh, you know, handing out stories at every port of call. And you mentioned the how this knowledge may have been tapped into, not necessarily by boat travel. But are you referring to psychoactive plants, uh, you know, the ayahuascas and the peyote and all that? Well, that would, be, uh, that would be one way that the consciousness can open up to a larger field of, of uh, universal principles and uh, experience of uh, connection, you know, between humans and the, the processes in nature and the processes in the universe that we're all surrounded by. Shamanism was a very important thing in Mexican uh, Mayan, Aztec, uh, Mesoamerican civilization. Uh, shamanism is the practice, um, you know, that is that is quite widespread, and they do shamans do use psychoactive uh, plants and uh, for healing work or to for a variety of reasons. 
And uh, that would be one way that uh, that kind of thing can happen. In fact, it, it seems like uh, some kind of psychoactive shamanism was being practiced at the site of Izapa, Izapa being the origin place of this uh, 2012 uh, cosmology and mystery. And, and I do believe that these kinds of um, tools, you might say, uh, can lend themselves to the development of a very sophisticated cosmology because it, it allows the, the, um, the seeker or the initiate, um, the, the person undergoing the experience, to perceive how things are interconnected. And so the kind of cosmology that the Maya developed was one like this. It was a comprehensive cosmology that emphasized the interdependence and the interrelationship between uh, different parts of the cosmos. And, uh, and so that's what we, we have going on in, 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 in the Maya world and again, it's a bit difficult for the scientific mindset to understand because the scientific uh, tendency is to isolate objects of knowledge and examine them uh, in a vacuum, more or less, uh, without um, recognizing connections between things, generally speaking. Not only that, but it's also illegal in the United States, at least, to, to experience that. And we have to travel to certain parts of the world to live that experience. But this is very important. Can you talk about some of the misconceptions of 2012? Well, there's a basically the biggest one is that the Maya predicted the end of the world in 2012. Um, you know, there's there's no evidence in the in the traditions that that's how they thought about cycle endings, let alone that that's how they thought specifically about 2012. The difference is that. Um, um, a cycle ending does involve um, the letting go or the surrendering of the concerns of the previous cycle. And a lot of times at the end of a cycle, um, the ego will attach itself to and fixate to the things that it doesn't want to let go, that need to be let go in order to move into a new phase or a new era. And this gets into more like the spiritual teachings. So... When the things that the ego, or the the um, uh, well, how do I say this? Uh, the end of a cycle can appear to be like an a, like an apocalypse to the ego, which is clinging to illusions, and uh, that is a deeper sort of part of the discussion that I I've tried to lead people into it. But I find that because there's so much noise around just the doomsday thing that it sort of takes all my energy just to keep, um, you know, reminding people that there's a deeper thing that can be explored here and that we have to sort of go into this information as an ever-deepening quest, in a sense. You know, to, I found that people that spend some time and are, are committed to really studying the Maya traditions and the spiritual teachings and the creation mythology, they just get past the doomsday thing. That's like a distraction. You know, that's for insincere uh, people that, that don't have the time or don't want to take the time and just want the, the, quick, uh, the quick fix uh, soundbite or something like that. So, so one of the greatest misconceptions is that, you know, the Maya predicted the end of the world in 2012. I mean, that's simply, 
a false statement. Uh, and uh, let's see, there's there's a whole other range of things that, that come into play around that. Like, for example, the idea that something specific is slated to happen within the architecture of time on that specific date, December 21st, 2012. Uh, that That's also unrealistic. And then another misconception is that is that December 21st, 2012 is not the accurate um, calendrical end date. End date. I say end date, but again, it's our linguistics. Um, it's better to call it a cycle ending date or period yes. ending date. Because when you say end date, it sort of gives the implication that it's the end of the world or something like right. that. And that's kind of where some of these mis- misconceptions have arisen from, from our own... Uh, the the limits of our own language and the terms that we use. Um, so the the other thing is that, um, yeah, the the third thing that is really confusing to a lot of people because you can go out on the Google sphere and find uh, this person's theory and this person's theory and this guy's got a book and then there's this other information. People can't separate out the wheat from the chaff. So there's a misconception that December twenty first, twenty twelve is just one person's opinion or something, you know, and and that's simply not the case. I mean, this has to do with how the calendar correlates with our Gregorian calendar and which date corresponds to the end of the 13th Bakhtun in the Maya calendar, and that's been figured out. I mean, that's been hashed over for decades and decades, for 100 years, and through a combination of looking at data from the historical records, uh, astronomical data, as well as carbon-14 dating and so on, it's December 21st of 2012. I mean, uh, I've, I've looked at this very carefully, and it's not just me. It's, it's the work of a whole set of scholars. But you have people out in the marketplace that are inventing their own end dates. I'm not quite sure why they feel they need to do this, uh, unless it's just to sort of have their own trademarked brand in the marketplace where they can rally all their books and you know workshops and and conference appearances around their their claim or something like that and sometimes outrageous claims draw attention and that's part of a strategy of marketing i think but uh, that's another misconception that there's just a bunch of end dates and nobody really agrees and and so it's all a hopeless discussion or something people People need to, uh, you know, learn to discern, you know, the the accurate information from stuff that people are just making up. And it's an, isn't it ironic that sometimes you go to a, an event or a conference, and some people approach you, and it's almost when you tell them what you found that no, there's nothing here that says that it's in the end of the world. It's almost as if you're reigning. <laughs> their parade, as if they expect it, and if you tell them otherwise, it's not fun, almost, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, that is a difficult thing, Mel, I, because I'm kind of a, I end up being sort of a, yeah, raining on their parade, as you say, or being a party pooper or something like party that. Party pooper, yeah. <laughs> Be, because, you know, pe- people want to believe what they believe, and, uh, you know, I can be a bit of a rabble rouser, I guess, when it comes to that kind of thing, because I just really want to, um, if people ask me a question about something, I'm going to tell them, you know, what I know. And, uh, a lot of times that can, uh, uh, feel to them like I'm, um, goring their sacred cow or something, you know, and, and they get upset, you know, and I have, 
upset people because of, um, you know, pointing out, you know, just on the level of facts, you know, there, there are certain basic fundamental facts of the calendar and how it works. And a lot of the debate and discussion and disagreement, especially in the popular marketplace of writers, revolves only around these things, only around mainly what I perceive is that writers coming into the topic sort of as latecomers and deciding they can write a 2012 book and make some money or something, and yet not doing their homework and getting a lot of the factual stuff just wrong. And uh, I, I find this very disturbing because some of these books are written by people that I consider, you know, uh, good people and intelligent people. And, um, you know, the, my calendar research can be a complicated thing, and it's very easy to get some of these basic factual things wrong. But uh, still it's there, and, and I find that it, it doesn't really help um, clarity in, in the discussion very much. And all you have to tell them is, please find me something where the Maya said that December 21st, 2012 will be the end of the world and they can't find it. But the culmination of the 13 back to him used to, the researchers used to say it was December 23rd, 2012, and it was later corrected in 1950 to December 21st, 2012, which made it coincide precisely with the winter solstice in 2012. How did they come up with this conclusion? Um, well, I, how did they, you mean, how did they identify the solstice or, or why did they pick that date? Well, two things. How did they identify the December 21st, 2012? And how did they identify the difference between the 23rd and the 21st? Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, the debate used to be between, you know, for scholars who were trying to figure out the exact correlation of the Maya calendar with our own calendar, the debate used to re revolve between those two dates, the December 23rd and 21st. And the confirming piece really came from the survival of the 260-day calendar in the highlands of Guatemala because um, the traditional daykeepers in the, in the highlands of Guatemala have apparently been following this 260-day calendar in an unbroken way, going back into the classic period. And that's because it's a very traditional system and it doesn't lend itself to being disrupted. Um, and so... What this allowed for was kind of a litmus test for any proposed correlation because the cycle ending would then have to fall on the day for a how. A how is one of the day signs in the calendar. So the number four with the day sign a how. That, that's what we find from the creation texts in the classic period, that the end of the 13th Bakhtun cycle must fall on this day for how in the 260-day calendar. So if we look at the survival of the calendar in the highlands of Guatemala today and we go out to December of 2012, we find that for a how does not fall on December 23rd. It falls on December 21st. So that's kind of a secondary litmus test for any proposed correlation. And, and that was one of the factors that led to the correction and correcting it to December 21st. So it wasn't just a desire to relocate it to the solstice or something. It was, it was the inclusion of yet another piece of evidence that would have to be factored into any any proposed correlation, and and that's that's why I think that um, you know the December twenty third <clears throat> proposal just doesn't work because if you did accept that, then you'd have to explain how 
the calendar got dislocated, and there's no there's no evidence that the Maya had or would ever just willy nilly decide to to switch their calendar two days. And I know a lot of the Maya spread around into Mexico and and uh, Guatemala, maybe even Honduras, all the way south. Are there still descendants from this time who have kept this knowledge? And if so, how come they're not able to disseminate this knowledge? Is it the Roman Catholic Church that keeps them quiet? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, actually, there's yeah, there's lots of traditional Maya groups, and um, there's basically traditions that are preserved around the 260-day calendar, which is called the Zolkin calendar. Mm-hmm. as I alluded to. And within this calendar tradition, um, the uh, traditionalist Maya daykeepers, or they like to call themselves the spiritual guides, or Aki, uh, they go out to shrines on certain days in the calendar, and they do ceremony and ritual. And some of these days indicate period endings, small period endings in the calendar. And those are special ceremonial days. So another thing that they preserve which is very important to the 2012 discussion, is the ideology or the spiritual teaching that is associated with period endings. What do they think about period endings? What do they do on period endings in their calendar as they preserve, uh, preserve it um, in their surviving calendar traditions? Well, it's, it's basically a fire ceremony, and it's, <clears throat> it's basically throwing or sacrificing things into the fire, things that... Uh, no longer have any use and and this sacrifice ceremony is how they believe they can open up to or facilitate the transformation and fire is a transforming elemental and the renewal of the human spirit and consciousness into the new cycle so we find here an exact replication of the spiritual teachings that were Uh, put into the Maya creation myth with the hero twins and their adventures and what they were trying to do. They were trying to facilitate the rebirth of their father, one Hunapu, who represents sort of uh, an awareness of the big picture, a return to the big picture. Um, Now, there's there's nothing that's preventing the Maya from... uh, coming out with their traditions and sharing their, their knowledge, it, the, not the church or anything like that. Um, in fact, last year, through the Maya Conservancy nonprofit, uh, we helped to facilitate um, a group of Maya spiritual guides um, led by Tat uh, Rigoberto Itzep Chanchavac, a Quiche Maya spiritual guide uh, from Momostenango in the highlands of Guatemala, um, we were able to go around to five different uh, shrines in the highlands of Guatemala, and we were able to get to Izapa and do a ceremony there, which was really, really meaningful because for the Maya, that, that's a very important origin place of their traditions, their creation myth, and their calendars. But Izapa's in Mexico, unlike the other sites we visited, and there is a bit of a problem with some of these things, like in Mexico, for example, the INA, the, the, the arm of the archaeology group, um, uh, and the history and archaeology group in Mexico, they mm-hmm. prevent the Maya from coming into the sites to do ceremony. It's, they're, they're, they're tourist sites, and the Maya can't come in and do fire ceremony or anything. That's their rule. 
In Guatemala, however, they encourage the Maya to come in because they think it's actually a good thing for the Maya to be doing rituals at their sites to help the tourists and other people to come in and understand what those sites are supposed to be for. So they actually have altars set up in Guatemala at places like Tikal and Iximche and Takalikaba. And at Azapa, though, which is right over the border into Mexico, um, it's a problem. Why not? We, Why are they not allowed? <clears throat> well, I think that it, it goes back to those old biases and, and prejudices of of like seeing the Maya as disruptive, and they don't want those fires going, and they don't want to encourage the Maya people to come into the archaeological sites and these kinds of things. It's problematic. It's It goes back to, I think, an old old prejudice, really. And um, so it's the current rule. I think that it might be changing in Mexico as they see that it's valuable to have the, the Maya come in. For one thing, it's fair. <laughs> it's the Maya. Nice. It's, it's, it's these, you know, these sites are sites that are uh, part of their heritage and tradition, and they should be allowed to come into the sites to do um, uh, religious. I think that perhaps it's like a separation of church and state thing, too, because mm. the archaeological sites are kind of run by state organizations. Um, so they might see that as, as being like a conflict or something. But the reason why I mentioned the Roman Catholic Church, I had a conversation with Michael Cremo a few weeks ago, and during my time in Mexico, I remember seeing a lot of archaeological work taking place in or just outside churches. And as you probably know, a lot of these churches were built on top of monuments from the Aztecs and the Mayans. And uh, even one American archaeologist went down there, and she was doing some carbon-14 studies and found that some of the, the artifacts found dated more than what they were saying in Mexico, and she was not allowed to release that to the media. Once again, we go back to ego. We go back oh, to, yeah. you know, we go back to uh, Egypt. You know, Dr. Yeah. Sahih was. He doesn't want their beliefs to be questioned. Right. Well, yeah, I know. Um, I've I've done a few conferences with Michael Cremo, and he finds evidence for some pretty pretty astounding things. And there, this is the same problem that I encounter with uh, putting forward my my research on the uh, on the origins of the Maya calendar and what it meant to them and the cosmology and this rare astronomical alignment, which is a, a fact of astronomy and is happening in the years around 2012, as being the reason why the Maya picked this date. Uh, these things are radical and heretical to the established status quo. And so you get the same problem, and I think that, um, let, yeah, I think what you're alluding to is that the Roman Catholic Church, like the official organs of status quo academia or, or even, yes. you know, politicians or scientists, they, they are threatened. They can be threatened by... Uh, things that um, you know uh, indicate the true genius of of uh, the indigenous peoples and, and the Maya people in particular. I mean, after all, when you know the Franciscan friars came over, they basically burned most of the Maya books. There's only four surviving Maya codices today, and and I think that probably one of the reasons behind that was. Not just the the sort of like uh, idea that they worship devils or something, but that there was stuff in there that they couldn't understand, and it seemed really sophisticated, and they 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 just didn't want to take the time and try to understand it. History repeats itself. The Library of Alexandria happens all the way here. 
But if the 13 back to equals 1,872,000 days, which is one era or world age era, yeah. if the 13th back to ends on December 21st, 2012, this is simply the end of the world age, why do other so-called researchers giving the, give this a new meaning to sensationalize it? <clears throat> well, um, yeah, that's interesting. You, you you framed it in that way because that is a good way to understand it. It's the end of the 13 Bakhtun cycle, and the Maya creation mythology is a world age doctrine. It talks about periods of world ages, and for your listeners, a world age is like a chapter or a, or a cycle. And and the Maya had a world age doctrine, like many other traditions around the world. They believe that humanity moves through certain chapters or phases, and these are called world ages. So this 13 Bakhtun period that uh, ends in uh, 2012 would be just one world age, and that's why we see a succession of world ages in the uh, in these ideas. Now, why do uh, other researchers or writers want to sort of ignore this or, or not? I don't know. I think it has to do with uh, just selectively choosing what works for their agenda and a lot of the agendas do does revolve around you know people are setting up websites to sell gas masks and survival yes. gear so it's not going to help their product line to to acknowledge you know um the facts of the matter in terms of what the tradition's really about if i had a penny for every time somebody has called me john asking me to please move out of the desert into the mountains or to buy gas masks or gold or silver. I'll be rich by now. But anyway, we have to take our one and only intermission. But I want to just ask you a question and get your answer on the other side. A lot of people are interested about this. Is there, in the Mayan culture, why, what did they expect at the end and beginning of a world age? The, obviously, there must be some positive or negative repercussions or consequences after this new age, uh, the world age changes. What were their expectations? And I'll take your answer on the other side. But once again, tell us how to get in touch with you, uh, your work and your great books. Well, I have a lot of information on my websites and I have several websites. The, the old standard is alignment2012.com. That can get you to basically everything else. My book, The 2012 Story, is uh, out in paperback now, and it'd be great for people to go out and get a copy or go to my website. Uh, I've got other things that I offer there. And I've got some events coming up in uh, Florida, so if listeners are in Florida, please uh, be in contact with me and uh, let me know your interest, and I'll put you in touch with, uh, with, the, uh, with the information on the conferences. And I have the book right here. It's an excellent book, folks. And you know me, folks. When I want to do a search for a specific topic, I wait and wait until I find the right candidate. And it took me a few months, but I finally found John. The 2012 story, the myths, fallacies, and truth behind the most intriguing dating history. You can get it through uh, John's website, or you can come to our website and get the links if you forget. Don't go anywhere. We have a fascinating conversation that still has a lot to cover. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission 
listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy! and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. (laughs) 